You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. Amen. Thank you, Brother Weldon. Appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate uh, the kind words that a pastor shared. I um, am thankful that you did not tell everyone that our website is out of date. And uh, we had Mrs. Uh, Reynolds come and speak for our ladies' retreat in February, and uh, she didn't know who we were, and so she went to look at our website, and it was out of date. And I felt horrible about that, but she came by faith anyhow, and uh, no pun intended. All right, and she came by faith, and God blessed, and we appreciate your pastor's wife coming and ministering to the ladies of our church and other churches there in the Central Valley, and I do appreciate your pastor and his invitation to come, and I do admit uh, about the Google stocking, I was looking up the services from Sunday because I thought, okay, I've actually heard your pastor preach at youth conference at uh, North Valley Baptist Church. You preached on Jonah, and you had the mannequin. And, uh, and so I had heard your pastor preach, but I was thinking, well, it's a midweek service, you know, I, this is what I would normally wear, but well, what would Pastor Reynolds wear at his church? And I saw him wearing the blue jeans and, you know, the, the cowboy outfit, and I was like, praise God, I'm going to enjoy this service. And then I saw it said Roundup Sunday, and I was like, oh, man, so I have to wear the, the tie and the dress shirt and everything, but I do appreciate you inviting me to come. And church family, thank you so much. Uh, for taking care of my family and allowing us to come here. Uh, it is about between 330 and, and uh, 350 miles from Atwater. We're north of Fresno, an hour north, and uh, we've been serving there, as Pastor said, for 13 years. Before that, we were missionaries in Ukraine for five years, and God has just been doing some amazing things, and we thank Him for that. And we appreciate you allowing us to come and minister this evening. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter number 16 to get started. And in just a moment, I would like to ask you if you're physically able to stand with me, but not not just yet. Uh, Here, you go ahead and find Matthew 16. Let me find out, uh, you know, I'm in Southern California, L.A. area, the metropolis, I guess. So do we we have any Dodger fans here? Is anybody a Dodger fan? Okay, all right. Uh, Any Angel fans? Okay, okay. Any, Any Giant fans? Any Giant... No giant fans here. Okay, well, I didn't, I didn't expect to see it. Oh, there, there, there's one that needs to be converted in Pastor Reynolds' family right there. All right, we're gonna, after the service, we're going to have a, one of these Benny Hinn things and knock some sense into him, right? And no, where I'm at in the Central Valley, we, we have a split. So we have people in our church that are Giants fans. We have people in our church that are Dodgers fans. I followed Daryl Strawberry growing up when he played for the New York Mets. He came over to the Dodgers, so I became a Dodger fan even before I came to California. And so there was a story one time about a man, he died, he went to heaven, and he's being toured around by one of the angels, taking a tour of heaven, and he notices that out in front of one of the mansions, there's this huge, this big banner, a giant's banner, hanging out in front of the mansion. And he turns to the angel and he says, whose mansion is that? He says, oh, that's Willie McCovey's mansion. Yeah, Willie McCovey's here, and that's his mansion. So he's hanging a giant's flag out in front of his mansion. And they walk down a little further, man, they get to a bigger mansion. I mean, it it dwarfed all the other mansions, and there's a flag out in front of it. It's even bigger than the one out in front of Willie McCovey's mansion. And the, the guy stops the angel, and he says, no, wait a second. 
That, that, that flag's a Dodger flag. That's flying out in front of that giant mansion right there. Well, well, that must be Sandy Koufax's mansion, right? I mean, if that last one was Willie McCovey's and he had a big giant's flag out in front, that must be Sandy Koufax's. And the angel says, oh, no, 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 that's God's house right there, amen? And uh, so anyhow, I love the Dodgers and uh, some of the people in my church, they love me despite that. Okay, Matthew chapter number 16. Let's get into God's Word this evening. If you're physically able, I'd like to encourage you to stand with me out of respect uh, for the Word of God as we read our opening text here. Matthew chapter number 16, and we're going to read verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, 13 says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. By the way, this is what Herod thought. Herod thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Some Elias, or as we know better, the name Elijah. And there were those that also believed that, this could, that Jesus could be Elijah because of the fact that in Malachi we're told that before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that Elijah the prophet may come back. And so there were some that thought he was John the Baptist, some thought he was Elias or Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? By the way, can I just say to you this evening that I am under the belief that everyone under the sound of my voice, everyone that may be watching at home this evening, knows Jesus Christ as Savior, but as I gave my testimony uh, to the workers in the meeting before the service, I don't want to take for granted that everybody does, because it was on a Wednesday night that I heard a message about hell that convicted me of my sin, and later I was saved as a result of that message. Can I say to you tonight that how you answer this question will really uh, determine whether or not you know Jesus Christ, the way that the Bible presents him. Because Jesus, after asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? He says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Because tonight there are some quote-unquote churches, some organizations, that they say that Jesus was a good man. They say that Jesus was a prophet. Uh, but they will not say that Jesus was the Son of God or God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. You see, how you answer that question really illuminates whether you know him as Savior or not. And so he asks... Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Son, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Savior. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This evening, I want to preach to you a message entitled, A Message for Overcomers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for allowing us to gather together tonight. For all the needs that were on the prayer slip that was handed out earlier, we pray that you'd meet them according to your will. Father, we ask that you would uh, put all distractions aside so that our minds are not wandering. Father, help our hearts to be open to what it is that you want to say to us tonight. Use your word to challenge and stir and convict us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and be seated if you would. So here in this passage of Scripture, once again, Jesus questioned his disciples about who men said that he was and who they believed him to be. 
And on the heels of hearing Peter's answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord stated that it was upon this rock. And we know that that statement has been twisted to where some have said that the, the church was built on Peter and Peter was the first pope. And that's not what Jesus was saying. When he said that, the, that his church was built upon this rock, a rock is something that is firm, it is something that is sound, it is something that's unbreakable. And he's talking about the principle, the doctrine, the teaching that he, Jesus, was and is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He says it's upon this rock that my church is going to be built. This is the first time that the word church is used in the Bible. But these people were not the first group referred to as a church. In the book of Acts, we're told that Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church at Jerusalem, and a man who was honest, filled with the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, faith, and power, made this statement about the Israelites of the Old Testament in Acts 7.37. He said, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. Verse 38, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. You see, the Hebrews, whom God had delivered out of bondage in the land of Egypt and led through the wilderness were referred to as a church because by definition, a church is a local assembly of believers. Jesus stated in our opening text that his church would be founded and built on that principle, that rock that he was the Christ. And in that statement, our Lord was illustrating a very important truth. That important truth is this, that not every church is Christian. There are churches or assemblies of believers who do not believe that Jesus was the Christ. The congregants of these churches look to their works to save them rather than the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. If the truth be told, there are even churches in existence that deny that there is a God. Did you know that there is a, an atheist church? Of course, you've probably heard of the Church of Satan before. So when we use that term church, it's to represent a, an assembly of believers. But what do those believers believe? Well, a Christian church believes, and the, the members of that church believe that Jesus was and is the Savior of the world. When one studies the wilderness church in the Old Testament and the churches started in the New Testament, you'll see that the church of the living God, the Christian church, exists to accomplish three things. There's three purposes for the church. Number one, it's to exalt the Lord God. That's the first reason for the church. Remember back in the Old Testament, the Israelites had the tabernacle, then they had the temple, and then the church building as we know it, and the church was formed in the New Testament, but the primary purpose for the tabernacle and the temple, it was a place where uh, the believers were to come and to exalt God, to worship Him. The second purpose is to edify other believers, to strengthen them, to encourage them. And the third purpose is to evangelize the unsaved or the lost. We're going to come back to this threefold purpose because we're living in a day and age where many churches have gotten the threefold purpose out of order. 
number one should always be to exalt God, to lift Him up. Looking back to our text here in Matthew, we find Jesus not only said that His church would be founded upon and built on the principle that He was the Christ, but He also made a very important promise to His disciples that we still cling to today. That promise found at the end of verse number 18 was this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. While I think that we all understand what the word prevail means this evening, just to be safe, I'd like to read for you what Noah, how Noah Webster defines it. Noah Webster tells us that to prevail means to overcome or to gain the victory or superiority over. The Lord promised his followers that his church would not be overcome or defeated. Rather, we have the opportunity to overcome, to be overcomers. With that being said, I'd like for us to turn our Bibles now over to the last book in the New Testament, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this is where we'll st spend the remainder of our study this evening in the third chapter. But before you go to the third chapter, I want you to go to chapter number one so we can get some context here. Revelation chapter number one, verse number nine. The Bible tells us, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John, the disciple of Jesus, has been exiled to this isle, this island, and he tells us why he was exiled there, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Would to God that once again there were believers that would stand upon this book and stand upon what Jesus Christ said to where we would be willing to be exiled. We would be willing to be imprisoned. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, as you're going to hear probably from some of your missionary guests this month, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are being persecuted in countries around the world and their lives are being threatened and even taken. Why? Because they've been saved and they love this book and they stand on this book and they say, no, I'm not going to change. I'm going to believe this book. I'm not going to believe what Islam says. I'm going to believe what Jesus says. I'm not going to believe what the Catholic Church teaches. I'm going to believe what the Word of God teaches. And they are putting themselves in harm's way, and they are, some, even sacrificing their own lives for the cause of Christ. And that's what John was. He was a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's exiled here. Verse 10, he goes on to say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that good? The Lord's day. The Lord's day, of course, is Sunday. That's why we come to church on Sunday, not the Sabbath day, not Saturday, on the Lord's day, Sunday. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So John is told here that he needs to write down what it is that he saw and then to send it. Later on in this passage, in this, this chapter, in verse number 19, 
The Lord actually tells John to write the things that he's seen, but also the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. To write down what is going to occur in the future. And then take these words and send them out to seven churches. And those seven churches are listed in chapters 2 and 3 for us. And Jesus gave a personal message through John to each of the angels or messengers, pastors of these churches to share with their congregations. Each of these churches was known for one thing or another. Uh, The church at Ephesus was known as the church that loved Jesus less than they used to. They left their first love. The church at Smyrna was known as the persecuted church, while the church at Pergamos was known as the compromising church. The church at Thyatira was known as the corrupt church, and the church at Sardis was the dead church. The church at Philadelphia was known as the faithful church, and then the last church, the church of Laodicea, was known as the lukewarm church. Now, these seven churches, as I mentioned a moment ago, were assemblies that actually existed in the first century. And the words that Jesus shared with John about them were to motivate them, to provoke them to good works. But the Lord had a second motive for mentioning these churches and sharing characteristics about their churches with John and with those who would read the book of Revelation. You see, it's believed that by many that these churches represent different ages or stages of Christianity leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. And that we right now are living in that final age. The age of the Laodicean church. The lukewarm church. Lukewarm Christianity. Turn over to chapter number 3 with me if you would. And let's go ahead and see what it was that Jesus said through John to the Laodicean church. I'm going to point out three things here real quickly that I hope will uh, challenge and stir us tonight from this uh, thought that, that John recorded for this church from the mouth of Jesus. The Bible says here in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The first thing we're going to see here is the Lord. The Lord is represented here in verse number 14. As John is told to write to the angel, the messenger of the church located in Laodicea. And when he writes to them, he's told to tell them that the things that they're about to hear are not coming from him, John. They're coming from the Lord. By the way, when the pastor gets up and he preaches from God's Word, and he doesn't deviate from God's Word, he doesn't preach his philosophy, he preaches the book, that's God speaking through him. And when God speaks through him, we need to be listening so that we can respond to what it is that God wants to say to us. Notice how... Jesus is represented here in verse 14. He's represented as the amen. He's represented as the faithful and true witness. He is represented as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what do these three terms mean? As we see, first off, the Lord. Well, back here 
he's mentioned as the amen first. If we were to do a Bible study and to go back and look in the Bible when the word amen is used, we would find that it's first found in Numbers 5. I don't know about you, but when I'm doing a study on a word, I'd love to go back and see how it's used the very first time it's mentioned in Scripture. In Numbers 5, we're told that God, through Moses, had uh, told, given some instruction to the children of Israel. And at the, uh, it was concerning a, a woman and how she was to take something to drink and uh, take something and drink it. And then that was going to uh, prove whether or not she was guilty of something that she was being accused of doing or whether she was innocent. And in verse 22 of Numbers 5, this is what was written. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman, after she has drank of this, shall say, Amen, Amen. The very next time it's found is in Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 15. Once again, we see God uh, delivering a, a sentence here to the children of Israel through Moses about someone who would bow down to a, a, and serve a graven image. In verse 15, it says, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So the first two times we see the word amen mentioned in the Bible, Numbers 5.22, Deuteronomy 27.15, those who were standing there and either uh, going through the judging process or witnessing the judging process taking place uh, upon one of the members of their, their uh, uh, town or their city, their village, they were to say amen to the judgment of God. They were to say, I agree is really what they were doing. They were saying, whatever God reveals, we agree with that. So when Jesus is referred to here as the Amen, what it leads us to believe is that Jesus is the one who always agrees with the will of the Father. By the way, he, tested, he illustrated that in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? When he said, not my will, but thine be done. He's the Amen. He's always going to agree with the will of the Father. He's never going to disagree with what God the Father says. He's going to support it. He's going to agree to it. By the way, that ought to be our attitude tonight. Whatever God says, my response to it is, Amen. Today we left from Atwater. The next city over from Atwater is Merced. Merced is about seven miles from Atwater. And we got to, uh, to Merced. And they're doing a lot of road construction in Atwater on Highway 99 and in Merced. And, and we got between two, an uh, off-ramp and an on-ramp, and we had to stop dead in our tracks. There was an accident that had happened in front of us just before the, the on-ramp. And so we were literally stuck in the middle here. We couldn't get off. We couldn't get on. We were stuck there for over an hour. I'll have to be honest with you. I, I wasn't sitting there saying Amen. I was sitting there saying, oh man, we're going to miss uh, being down, uh, down in Southern California this evening. We're not going to make it to Long Beach tonight. And my daughter Naomi was sitting there next to me, and she said, Dad, it's going to be all right. She said, it seems like every time you go to preach somewhere, something bad happens because Satan's trying to keep you from getting there. And I said, that's good attitude. And I appreciate that attitude. Hey, sometimes God sends good things our way. We need to say amen to it. But sometimes he sends trials and we need to say amen. I still agree, God, because if it's your will, 
it's what's best for me. Jesus is the amen, but he's also known as the faithful and true witness in our text, we're told. In Proverbs 14, verse 5, Solomon wrote this, A faithful witness will not lie, but a faithful witness will, uh, uh, but a false witness will utter lies. He tells us that a faithful witness tells the truth. I am thankful for people who would tell the truth, even when it's hard to hear the truth. Jesus was always going to tell the truth. And that's how he's being presented here to the church at Laodicea. Listen, I am the amen. I always agree with the will of the Father. And I'm always going to tell you the truth. Now, someone might look back to our text in Revelation 3.14 and say, well, if uh, him being a faithful witness means that he's always going to tell the truth, then why is he called the faithful and true witness? Isn't that sort of redundant, Pastor Miller? Well, later on in Proverbs 14, verse 25, Solomon wrote this, a true witness delivereth souls. You see, by calling him the faithful and true witness, what we learn is that he's going to always tell us the truth and his goal is always to deliver our soul. It's always for our benefit that he is telling us the truth. Now, he's getting ready to address the church of Laodicea, remember. So he's got some harsh words for him. They're the lukewarm church, and he just wants to remind them, I'm the one who's always going to say amen. I'm the one who's always going to agree with uh, the will of God the Father, and I'm the one who's always going to tell you the truth because it's for your benefit. It's because I want to deliver your soul. The third thing he is called here in Revelation 3.14 is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there are some out there that are misled, and they would have you believe that Jesus was a created being. He was not. He has always been, amen? That's why he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not the brother of Satan. <laughs> Satan is an, a fallen angel. Jesus is God, is God and was God in the flesh. And so when he says here, oh, uh, just tell the church at Laodicea that the beginning of the creation of God is the one who's speaking to him. He's not saying, I was a created being. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Later on, in Galatians 6.15, Paul wrote once again, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. You see what was being said here in Revelation 3.14 when he called himself the beginning of the creation of God. He was reminding the church of Laodicea, I was the beginning of your Christian walk. I'm the one who made you a new creature. When you came to me and you received me, Jesus Christ as your Savior, I made all things that were old pass away and I gave, made all things new and I made you a brand new creation, a brand new creature. So just remember that the person who's about to speak to you is the amen who always agrees with the will of God the Father, the faithful and true witness who's always going to tell you what you need to hear, whether you want to hear it or not, because I look out for your soul and I want to deliver your soul and I'm the beginning of the creation of God. I'm the reason you're saved and not going to hell this evening. And when you think about it that way, if I was in the church of Laodicea, you know what I'd do? I'd say, all right, I'm all ears. What do you got to say? Because 
Jesus had made them into the people they were, taking them out of sin and darkness and setting their feet in the light. So we see then secondly in Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, that Jesus addresses the Laodiceans. And now we, our attention is turned towards the Laodiceans. We're told in verse 15 and 16, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He directs our, uh, the attention of the Laodiceans to themselves. He says, now that you know who's speaking to you, it's the amen, it's the faithful and true witness, it's the beginning of the creation of God, the work that is, has been done in your heart and in your life, I've got something I need to tell you. I know thy works, verse 15. By the way, if you read all seven of the personal messages that Jesus shared to the seven churches, he tells all seven of them, I know your works. People try to diminish works. We know works doesn't save you. James was very clear about that. The Apostle Paul was very clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But James was also clear that after you're saved, that you show your faith by your works. See, we're saved by faith, but after we're saved, then our faith should grow and we should have a living faith, not a dead faith. As Peter told us in 1 Peter, we should have a living faith. And that living faith ought to be evident through our works, through our attitudes and our actions. And so the Lord Jesus Christ focuses here on the Laodiceans and first on their works. And he tells them, you are lukewarm. You're not hot, you're not cold. When we were in Ukraine, I remember in the summertime, it would get really humid over there. That's one thing I love about how God transplanted us to the Central Valley. I grew up in Iowa where it doesn't get real hot, but it's humid. Talked to my dad today, and I asked him how it was over the weekend there in Iowa, and he goes, oh man, it was hot. I go, it was hot? It was really hot? How hot was it? He goes, oh, it's 82. I'm thinking, what? I'm in the Central Valley. It's supposed to be 111 on Monday. And I just sort of chuckled. But it's a, a dry heat where we're at in the Central Valley. I love the dry heat. I can handle that. Over in Ukraine, it was a humid heat like the Midwest. And I remember we'd work out in the yard. We had a garden and things. And we would go get ice cold water. We were talking to people in the church. We had one man in our church. His name was Vadim. And, and I was talking to Vadim one time, and I, he had come over to the house, and I said, hey, do you want a, a glass of cold ice water? And he said, no, 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 I'll take lukewarm water. I said, lukewarm water? He goes, yes, yes, very superstitious. And he said, yes, yes, one time I, I was working in the heat, and I came inside, and I had a glass of ice cold water, and I lost my voice. So I won't drink it anymore lukewarm water for me and i thought man that guy's living in purgatory when he doesn't have to and we got ice praise god and he wants to drink lukewarm water i don't like lukewarm anything i don't like lukewarm coffee gotta heat it back up i don't like lukewarm soda pop better put some uh, some uh, ice cubes in it hey hot or cold and god's the same way he says i look at your works and you're lukewarm you're not hot, you're not cold. I'd rather that you were hot or you were cold. He goes on to talk about their attitude in verse 17. Notice 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. These lukewarm Christians, this lukewarm church, they said, hey, we're rich. Hey, we've increased in goods. Hey, we don't have need of anything. Folks, I know I'm in America. I think America, the United States of America, let me rephrase that because our brethren in Canada are also Americans and sometimes that bothers them. But in the United States of America, we are very blessed and I believe this is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. But can I also tell you, I think we are the most spoiled people in all the world. Why is revival happening in third world countries where there are missionaries? Why? Because they don't have this attitude. We're rich. We have goods. We're wealthy. We've increased. We don't don't need anything. Folks, we live in the United States of America where you can work hard and get almost anything in life. And in America now, if you can't, the government will give it to you. So it really, you have, most people have no needs or very few needs. We have people in third world countries that they are so poor, they make a, a fraction of what we might make, and yet they are thirsty for the Word of God. And yet they desire to see God uh, reach their family members and their friends, and they, they want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because their attitude is different. See, in America, we have gotten complacent. And the Laodiceans had this attitude. We're rich. We're increased in goods. We don't have need of anything. And then the third thing that the Lord addresses here is their condition. Notice in verse 17, He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not, look at what they didn't know, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We were talking about this in the meeting before. I was sharing the story of the maniac of Gadara and his conversion. And I was talking about depression and discouragement. And if you are, have gone through it or you're going through it, I understand it's a very real thing. All of us face it. By the way, pastors face it too. We have such high goals. We have such high hopes for every person that's under the sound of our voice. We want every person that walks through the doors of, of the church that God has given to us, we want every person to get saved or to grow in their faith. We have probably greater visions for some of the families in our church than they have for themselves. So discouragement and depression are real. I'm not trying to minimize those. But once again, when you look at the United States of America, we, along with some other nations that are very wealthy, struggle with depression and discouragement more than most poor countries. We have, once again, everything you could want. We have technology galore. Seems like everybody has a phone. I still remember, I don't know how many, how many of you folks are my age or older. I'm going to be 45 in September. Someone says, you admit that? Absolutely, I'm proud of it, amen? Well, you look like you're 50. Okay, I'm going to be 50 in September. But no, seriously, I'm, I remember back in the day when they had bag phones. And you plugged it into your cigarette lighter. I remember my dad got one of those. He had a bag phone. And I went to school, public school, and I was like, my dad's got a cell phone in the truck there. Now everybody's got a cell phone. I got, I got a kid at the last youth activity we had, and he's like, hey, preacher, look. And he pulls out three cell phones, all iPhones. I'm like, what? We have so much stuff in America. 
But stuff doesn't bring happiness. And that's why the Lord tells this church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, hey, I wish you were hot or cool, but you're lukewarm, and you have this attitude, hey, we're rich, we're increased in goods, we don't need anything, but in reality, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, and you don't even realize it. So then we see the third thing and the final thing. We see the love of the Lord. It's a love that advises. It's a love that appeals. It's a love that awards. Notice in verse number 18, he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. He gives this advice. Advice that stems from love. Remember, Laodicean church, who's speaking to you? It's the amen. It's the faithful and true witness. It's the beginning of God's creation or the creation of God. He says, I know your works. I know you're lukewarm and I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold and you've got this, this horrible attitude where you say, well, we're rich, we have, we're increased in goods, we don't need anything, and in actuality you are uh, wretched and miserable and poor and naked and blind. And he says, here's my advice for you. And this advice comes from a heart of love. I counsel thee to buy of me. You know what he's saying there? I have everything you need. But I need the next... And you mentioned something. Could be a vehicle. Could be a device. I need that. No, no, no. The only thing Laodicean church, he tells them that they need is a relationship with him. I counsel thee to buy of me. I have everything you really need. Everything that's going to change your life. I have what's going to clothe you. I have what's going to heal you. I have everything you need. That's the counsel he gives them. And then he makes an appeal to them in verse number 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He, gives the, he makes this appeal out of love. He says, I love you and I'm rebuking you. I'm chastening you because I love you. And so now I appeal to you, repent. Repent. You're heading this way. Turn back. To me, he says. And then we get to verse 20. And you know what I find interesting about verse 20? Verse 20 is a verse that we will reference a lot as preachers and as born-again believers when witnessing to people who are unsaved. Notice what he says here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He says, behold, look, I stand at the door and knock. So often we'll use that when talking to people who aren't saved and saying, hey, God is knocking at your heart's door and he wants you to be saved. And while that application is true, God does want people who are lost to open their heart and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and allow the Holy Spirit of God to come and live inside of them. That's not the interpretation here. He's talking to a church. What is a church? It's an assembly of believers. What did these people specifically believe? That Jesus was the Christ, the Savior. And he says to them, I stand at the door and knock. You know what he's saying here? Church, 
you kicked me out. And I want back in. Folks, you know why Jesus was kicked, and you know why God was kicked out of our public schools? Because he got kicked out of our churches a long time ago. He got kicked out with the contemporary Christian movement. And when we kicked him out because we wanted to replace our pianos and our, our orchestras with bands so we could bring in the young people, we kicked Jesus out. And so then the world says, well, man, if the churches are going to kick Jesus out, let's kick him out too. You see, Jesus has been kicked out of so many places where he's, they say that He is their Savior and their Lord. And He's knocking saying... Let me back in. By the way, he's doing that with some believers too. Some believers have kicked them, him out of their home and out of their lives. And he says, you know what? I don't want you to watch that. I don't want you to listen to that. I don't want you to do that. Sorry, Jesus. I'm going to just put you over here in this corner. You can have every part of my house, but not this part. Or you can have every part of my life, but not this part. And he says, you know what? I'm standing at your door, and at, at the door of your heart, and I want you to let me back in. Let me be your Lord. I'm already your Savior, but let me be your Lord once again. And if you will open that door, I'll come in and I'll sup with you. And so he makes this appeal. And then notice, he talks about awards in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. He says, if you, who are the lukewarm church, lukewarm church is full of lukewarm Christians, if you'll open the door and let me back into your life, let me back into your congregation, you won't be lukewarm for very long. You are going to get on fire. You're going to be excited. You're going to be an overcomer. And in a time when the gates of hell are trying to prevail against the church of God, and we know that they never will because Jesus promised that they'll never overcome His church, you in that church can be an overcomer. You can prevail. And He says, and I've got special blessings for you. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. He says, I've got special awards for you when you overcome and when you let me in and you become a Christian who is excited and on fire and has a relationship with me. I look back at my life since I got saved almost 30 years ago. And as I follow the leading of the Lord in my life. And I wish I could say my, that my life has been perfect and I've made all the right choices. I haven't. But I look at when I would allow God to lead God and direct me. I have seen Him do amazing things. Your, your pastor mentioned, and I'm bringing this to a close, but your pastor mentioned a moment ago the opportunities, some of the opportunities we've had in our city. Our city's not very big. It's In the last census, it's they said we have about 31,000 people. Well, back in 2020, back in May, when we were having the pandemic and we were right in the heart of it, uh, of course, churches were being shut. And I don't know how your church fared through that. I know what our church had to do. And there was a point where our city council, uh, they said, you know what? We think that people ought to be able to worship God. And so they said, well, here's what we're going to do. We are going to make our city a sanctuary city for churches and small businesses and say that they can open their doors 
uh, and they can, the small businesses can serve the community and the churches can have worship services. So our mayor, he's, he's a Roman Catholic man. I've been going to the city council meetings for about a year and a half. They came to interview him and they were talking to him, uh, one of the stations out of Fresno. And when they got done talking to him, they said, you know what, we, uh, we like to talk to someone about the, the churches and, and someone to represent the churches. And he says, you know what? There's a pastor that's been coming to the city council meetings. His name is Rich Miller. Let me come introduce you to him. And he brought them over to, to talk to me. The Lord has given us favor in our city where we've been able to, I've been able to sit down and personally witness for two hours to our mayor and city council members and, and our police chief and our fire chief. God's given us that ability and that favor, and I praise Him for it. It's all Him that's doing it. And I look at it and I say, just the other day, my son Timothy and I, we went out and we were throwing the ball at one of the parks in our town, and someone drives by from the city, honks the horn, waves. Here comes a police officer, honks the horn. We ducked behind a tree. No, I'm just kidding. No, they honked the horn and they waved. And I, and I said, you know what? This feels like Mayberry, amen? feels like Andy Griffith. I love that that God has given us that opportunity to minister to people, and He's opened doors. God has opened them. Opened doors for our church that we couldn't have opened. Why? Because He says, if you will open the door to your heart, then I will do things in your life and with you that you could not imagine. God is so amazing. And notice how He closes this in verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Simple question for you as we close tonight. Do you have just one, at least one? If you have one ear, raise your hand. Anybody have an ear? Okay, praise God. I think every hand went up. I didn't count. He that hath an ear, if you have an ear, he's saying you need to listen. Because this church really existed. And can I say this type of Christianity exists right now? But you know where it ought not exist? Gethsemane Baptist Church. You know where it ought not exist? Victory Baptist Church in Atwater. Hey, in, in Gethsemane Baptist Church and Victory Baptist Church, there ought to be a spirit of revival. There ought to be people who love the Lord and want to keep the traditional ways and want to follow the Word of God and want to see God do some amazing things. By the way, all the tactics and the antics and the things that we've been told we have to change in our churches to reach the lost, guess what? They haven't worked for the other groups. You know why? Because remember that threefold purpose I shared with you at the beginning? Exalt God, edify believers, evangelize the lost. What happened is they said, we need to evangelize the lost, and they put that at the top. To the point where exalting God wasn't the number one priority of Christianity. And it hasn't been over the last 20 to 30 years in many churches. And you know what? I'm looking around and I don't see our world getting better. I don't see our country getting better. You know why? Because the country and the people who exalt God first will then be exalted by God. That has to be our number one priority. Why do we come to church? Well, because pastor expects us to. No. Why do we come to church? Because brother so-and-so will call me up or sister so-and-so will beat on my door and ask, why wouldn't I at church? No, that's not why. We come to church because we want to exalt God and edify each other and reach the lost. And if we keep it all in the right order and we have the right heart, 
open to God, he's going to do some amazing things. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening, and we'll have our invitation song in just a moment. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask tonight, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Once again, I said, I do not want to take for granted that everyone under the sound of my voice or anyone that's watching at home this evening knows Christ. There may be someone who doesn't. This evening, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, I want to beg with you, I want to plead with you when the music plays to come and get saved tonight. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're a young man, a young lady, an adult, you just come to the altar and you let someone here, your pastor, one of the men or one of the ladies from the church, show you how to receive Christ as Savior. And if you are saved, then let me encourage you to do a self-evaluation as David did. Ask God to search your heart and to show you whether or not you're a lukewarm Christian. Whether or not there's an area of your life you're holding back from Him. Is He knocking tonight and trying to get back into your life? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to join me by standing if you would. I'm going to ask the ladies to begin playing. And as they play the invitation song tonight, if God has spoken to your heart, would you come to this altar and would you kneel before the Lord. If you're physically not able, then let me encourage you to sit where you are there at your row and just go to the Lord in prayer. He'll hear you there. But if you can physically come and kneel and pray, you do so. Tonight, are we lukewarm? Or are we on fire for the Lord? Do we want to be overcomers? Or are we going to be a statistic? Are we going to be overcome? We know that the church of God will not be overcome. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But will the gates of hell prevail against you? Will the gates of hell prevail against your family? Or will you purpose that you're going to let God be at the center of your life? That you're going to let Him be at the center of your home. That Jesus Christ will be the center of this wonderful church so that God can use the Gethsemane Baptist Church to exalt Him, to strengthen every member in it, and to reach people around this metropolis and around the world. With head bowed and eyes closed, some have come to pray tonight. Maybe you need to leave your, your row and come and do business with God. Maybe, once again, there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. Let me challenge you, don't walk out of here unsaved. As a 16-year-old boy, I heard a message about hell, and I walked out of a Wednesday night service and did not get it settled. I praise God that I had a mom who saw that God was working on my heart and she took me back to talk to my pastor. But what if she hadn't noticed? I would have continued on in that lost condition. Maybe never getting saved. Tonight, I know it's a midweek service. But don't leave here if you're lost. Don't leave here without Jesus Christ. If you have a family member, a friend who doesn't know Christ, let me ask you, when is the last time you prayed for him? When's the last time you wept for him? The Bible says that if we 
will sow in tears will reap in joy. Oh, lukewarm Christianity doesn't accomplish a whole lot. In fact, according to Jesus, it makes him sick. Let's be Christians that are on fire for him this week. Father, we thank you tonight for the message we heard. What a challenge about even our motivation, what we do and why we do it and why we come to church. And uh, well, we do it because we want to exalt and magnify you because we love you. We love you because you first loved us and you showed that love on the cross. Lord, thank you for the message tonight, even the reminders of what the function of a church, the functions of a church are supposed to be. And just, uh, Lord, so many thoughts there to consider and to take home with us. Thank you for, for this last couple, this last month of awesome August has been so great. As, it seems like every message has been what we've needed. And I thank you tonight for this message as well. We needed this one, and I needed it. And it was just so clear to me, Lord, that you had uh, some reminders in there for me. And so I pray that you'd bless this family, bless the Millers as they're hanging around town a little bit tomorrow and they head back and for you give them safety, continue to bless the Victory Baptist Church and bless the Miller family, continue to use them where they are. And God, I pray that we would not soon forget what we've been hearing on these uh, midweek services and the service tonight. Lord, help us carry it with us this week. We do love you. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for being, hey, you've been, some of you have been here every single week for Awesome August. Thank you so much. It's always a great, it's always great encouragement to me to see you here. And uh, we go back to Wednesday next week, okay? So don't show up Thursday. Let's go back to Wednesday. Stick around in fellowship. Some of us need that fellowship. And then we'll see you Saturday for soul winning. God bless you. You are dismissed. Mm-hmm.